Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up, and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and welcome to this special 500th episode of the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast brought to you on the podcast channel and the YouTube channel. Who'd have thought we'd made it four and a half years in? I mean, in podcasting world, it's like the granddad, the Yoda of podcasting. That's a long time to do a podcast, 500 episodes. I want to thank you for being a subscriber, a follower, a fan, and loyal to the Disruptive Entrepreneur mission. So this is a very special episode. The first thing is we've got some prizes, some gifts to give away. Now, normally competitions are like one person out of 10 million could be in with a chance. Every single one of you could get not one, but five, one for every 100 episodes, gifts from me. I'll tell you what to do in a couple of minutes. But first, the concept of this show. So we're always looking to disrupt our own concept. Now, normally for an anniversary edition, we'd be inviting you to a special event, getting the podcast listeners together, big special guest, all of us in a community. But of course, with the lockdown, we're not able to do that. So instead, what we've done is got one of my greatest mentors, someone who I've learned from and look up to the most in life, And instead of just interviewing him, we've turned the tables and he mentors me live. Now, over the years, I've had thousands of messages loving the guests, not loving them all, (laughs) Uh, loving the content, the the unique things that we have on the show, like the caffeine cast and the Rob's rants. But you know what I get more messages from than anything else, hundreds at a time? It's when I mess up, make mistakes, look stupid, show my flaws and failings and therapy rants and sessions in front of the masses. So because we know you like that sort of thing, John mentors me live. He gives me quite a lot of therapy. He goes quite deep. He opens me right up and I think you'll love it. And by the way, we did one live for this when we recorded it a couple of weeks ago and there were hundreds of comments and people were going wild for this. So I think you're gonna love it. If you want the video version, it's on my YouTube channel. Just search my name, Rob Moore. And of course, you can listen to the audio version on the podcast itself. Now, the competition. Well, it's not even really a competition. All you have to do is share a link for my podcast, the YouTube channel or the iTunes podcast or the Stitcher podcast, you know, wherever you listen to my podcast. All you have to do is share a link on your social media. And I'm going to give you not one, but five gifts. Now, what you'll need to do is just show us a screenshot to prove you've done it and email that to supporters at robmore.com. That's supporters at robmore.com on your page, on your profile, whatever social media you're on. Now, if you share this on your social media, I've done various live keynote speeches, many of which I've been paid for. We've got the Rob Moore keynote collection. You're going to get that free. How to build a business and personal brand and what the difference is between the two. Live talk. You're going to get that how to be a content creation machine. Let's be honest. I've got many flaws and failings, but churning out content, you know I can do that. 
how to start, grow, scale and monetize your podcast. We've got a live stream on that. And then one lucky winner is going to get my £2,000 brand new online podcast masterclass and all the bonuses like the podcast mastermind and various other add-ons. So share the link to my podcast. The link uh, to this audio version is bit.ly forward slash D-I-S-E-N-T podcast. bit.ly forward slash D-I-S-E-N-T podcast or go find it on YouTube or Stitcher or wherever. Put it on your social media. Just say, hey, look, I'm a fan of the disruptive entrepreneur or whatever you want to say. Screenshot it. Send the proof to supporters at robmore.com and you'll get all four of those plus one of you will get the podcast online masterclass, which is worth at least £2,000. Can't ask for fair in that on the 500th episode. Let's go deep into a brutal and vulnerable mentoring session uh, on me with one of the greatest mentors of our time, Dr. John DiMartini. Hello, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to a very novel disruptive entrepreneur and live stream. So I am in a very privileged position here where I get to introduce to you Dr. John DiMartini. So uh, John, we are now live. Hi everybody. <laughs> So um, this could end up, uh, John, being our 500th podcast episode. So it's a bit of a special one. Um, we like to do anniversary specials and do something a bit different. And I know I've told you this uh, many times before, John, but uh, your work's inspired me greatly over the last 15 years. 15 years being an entrepreneur that I am, I've done what I've done and I've had some relative success, but I still do wrestle and, and struggle with some things of being an entrepreneur. Um, so. Could I start, John? Um, I have this paradox inside me where I've been a, a student of personal development for 15 years, of which much of your work's been much of my study. And I, I feel like one of my highest values is growth and progress. So I get this big kick out of achieving things, you know, get excited when I get podcast downloads, maybe feel a bit depressed when they're not so good. You know, like the achievement side of authoring books and um, having successful companies and, and the ongoing personal growth that that gives me. And that excites me and inspires me and motivates me. But, but there's, I, that also leaves a bit of a hole when I don't have that. And my therapist seems to think that when I was a child, um, I didn't really get love from my dad unless it was based on me achieving things. As an overweight kid, I didn't get noticed by kids at school unless I somehow performed or fitted in or got, or got some recognition from them. So there seems to be this theme in my life that as long as I'm entrepreneurial, making a difference, achieving things, I feel alive and worthy. But you take all that away and I really struggle with just being enough and, and it'd be okay to be me and to not have this identity as an entrepreneur. That's probably the longest first question I've ever asked. Um, but I know you'll have lots to say on it, so over to you. Okay, good. Well, I can go in a lot of directions with that. I, I, we have a couple of weeks now. To yeah, we something. do. I'm all good. <laughs> um, okay. Let me see if I can unpack this in steps. And um, maybe yourself and others who are maybe listening to this might reflect on it through life. 
You know that I discuss human values in much of my work. And every human being has a set of priorities or set of values that they live their life by. Whenever they are doing something that really is in alignment and really is uh, congruent with what is really most meaningful to them, they are spontaneously inspired to act. And they're more resilient to the addiction to praise and the, the fear of rejection. Because they're, I mean, most everybody who's been really, really had an inspiring and really amazing day, they can handle the, the volatilities of what happens to them. So whenever you're living by your highest priority, you're more objective. And objectivity means even-minded or centered or equitable. So whenever we're doing things that are high in our priorities like that and filling our day that way, we have a lot more resilience to praise or reprimand. We don't get too attached to praise. We don't get too of, you know, frightened of reprimand. We're more resilient, adaptable. Why? Because we're more objective. When we're more objective, we're more neutral. Objectivity is another name for neutral. The executive center in the forebrain comes online when we're living by priority, and it governs the vicissitudes of impulses and instincts in our amygdala, the desire center, and calms them down and makes us less emotional, reactive to praise or reprimand. So every moment we are living by higher values, we have more resilience to those distractions. As the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable, you know, all praise, and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable, all reprimand, is a source of human suffering. So when we live that way, we have the highest probability of embracing pain and pleasure in the pursuit of our purpose, the highest degree of praise or reprimand without being distracted, and the highest accomplishment level. In fact, the word ambition comes from ambi, both-sided. A condition of honoring both sides is what ambition is. And the second we live by our highest values and we have the true ambition, the true calling to do something great, we have that resilience. There's nobody that I know of that doesn't desire to expand in all areas of their life, spiritually, mentally, career, financial, family, social, physical. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I want to have less knowledge. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I want to have less business savvy or achievements there or less wealth or less fulfillment relationship or less social influence or less um, physical vitality, beauty, or less spiritual awareness. We have a natural yearning to continue to expand. And when people hit a wall or a kind of a plateau, Sometimes they say, well, it's not really important to me. It's not what I really want. But then I show them, if, oh, if I could show you how to get past that wall, would you take it? And they take it every time. So it's a natural yearning to want to continue to expand, and there's no end to that in our life. There's, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where you go, okay, I'm done. If you do, it's because you've hit no strategies to get you past the next obstacle, and you're, you're justifying it in your mind. Now. With that said, if you're not living by priority or you feel being sideswiped and you don't have a strategy of taking whatever's happening right now to help you fulfill what's highest in priority, you'll go down into lower value systems, you'll go into the amygdala, and the amygdala is, as I said, the desire center. And it's the animal behavior that wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, avoid reprimand, seek praise, 
avoid predators, seek pre you know, prey, and avoid challenge and seek ease. And that's why it's the immediate gratifying center that usually causes speculation and gambling mentalities and immediate addiction behaviors and overconsumption behaviors, et cetera. That's where our, most of our challenges actually originate is from that, that center. But whenever we have an event in our life that we don't feel is helping us fulfill our highest value, we can go back into that area and then set up unrealistic expectations on ourselves or other people. Now, pardon me for the developing of this, because I, I want to develop this. You probably, you know, the, if you have kids that like to ask a lot of questions, I learned a long time ago, if you give them an hour question, hour answer to their question, they start looking things up for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so an animal in the wild that uh, has a number of mechanisms to cope with distress and to survive. One of them is patternistic. And patternist is that no matter what it sees in its camouflaged environment, because both prey and predator camouflage themselves for their protection, you have patternistic and you see things in patterns and things in order to be alert to possible prey or predator. And that part of the brain is also back in that amygdala. Then you also have what is called uh, pareidolia. You tend to see faces in those patterns in case it is a prey or predator. Then you also have on top of that agenticity, you have a tendency to see it alive, because if it was dead, there'd be no concern and you wouldn't want to eat it, and you wouldn't want to be worrying about it. And then you also have apophenia, which is a tendency to find meaning in it based on what you value at the time. If you're overfed, you're gonna to want to run. If you're hungry, you're gonna to want to find food. So you automatically, when you're in amygdala, put those things on there, and then what happens is, you create false positive biases in order to survive. A false positive bias is you have to accentuate that there's a problem there to get your adrenaline up to be able to run away or run towards it. So what happens when we go into our amygdala, this false positive, false negative uh, bias, confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias, emerges and distorts our reality and accentuates the positive of the prey, the prey and accentuates the negative of the predator in order to get the adrenaline up high enough to run after the prey or get away from that predator. And when we do, we tend to exaggerate how important it is to get the praise and exaggerate how devastating it is to get the reprimand. And then what we do is we are frightened. We live in a phobia and a philia. And you can't have phobia without philia because if you strive for this praise, the philia of getting it becomes the phobia of not getting it. And the phobia of this becomes the philia of escaping it and the phobia of getting it, having it eat you. So what happens is we tend to accentuate those when we're not living by our highest priority or when we've had an event that we think is interfering with what we really want. So it's not just you, it's any human being. Any human being is naturally going to face that situation when they don't see a strategy in advance past the obstacle they think and it's keeping them from doing what's highest on their value. And you start questioning yourself because when you go down there, you have uncertainty. And let me elaborate on that. I hope I'm not taking too long on these questions. No, no, this is your show. Well, it's my show, yeah, but it's so, your show. <laughs> so watch now. If I went up to you, Rob, and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean. You're always kind, you're never cruel. You're always generous, you're never stingy. You're always giving, you're never taking. You're always positive, never negative. You're always considerate, never inconsiderate. You're always peaceful, you're never wrathful. If I said that about you and you're always one side and never the other, your bullshit meter would go off. 
and you'd go, and you'd be immediately thinking of times when you go, uh, you don't know me. I'm, I also have some rough times too. And if I went to you and I said, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always negative, never positive, always wrathful, never peaceful, always stingy, never generous, always taking, never giving, always inconsiderate, never considerate, your bullshit meter would go off. Because you go, no, that's not true. I'm a, I'm a guy, I give, I'm generous, I work hard. Da, da, da. You never have certainty when you have polarized biases. Anytime you have an imbalanced state and not objectivity, you have subjectivity, there's always uncertainty in the mind. But if I went to you and I said, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, you'd immediately go, yep, that's true. You have certainty when I balance that. And we lose and skew our certainty the moment we get in our amygdala. We tend to accentuate, we tend to bias things, we tend to polarize our perceptions as a survival mechanism instead of a thrival mechanism. So the number one thing that we can do when we're under these situations is to get into priority. And then anything we think is interfering with that priority, we need to ask the question, how is whatever's happening right now, how is it helping me fulfill what's priority? Because there is nothing going on ever that's interfering with what we want to do, except in our perception. And we have control of our perception, decisions, and actions. So if we ask, how is what's happening on the way, not in the way, and we link it to what's highest on our value, we see nothing in the way, we reopen up our executive center, we then govern our amygdala, we skew down our anxieties and phobias and philias, and get back on our mission, if you will, which is an objective. The purpose of the executive center in the brain is to calm down fantasies and get objectives. And many people confuse goals, uh, and they, 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 they think a goal is something that's got more advantage and disadvantage. But the real truth is that when you get there, you're gonna find out you had just as many disadvantages getting there as you thought. So eventually you learn that a real objective is has the pros and the cons, the positives and negatives and the balance already included, and you're foresighting and thinking what they are in advance, mitigating the downside so you're not phobic, and calming down the fantasy so you're not philic, and you're steady on where you wanna go with certainty. That's the executive center. So a lot of the goals we have are fantasies to some degree or another. They got more pleasures than pains. We get there, oh, I'll be happier. Oh, when I get there, I'll be amazing. Or people will do this. Any of those automatically create anxieties and phobias and concerns of the opposite nature as a biological mechanism to try to home us back onto the center, to try to get us back to our real highest value and what's really priority. So what you're describing is a normal biological response, not because of some injury or psychosis or anything like that. It's just a normal biologic response if you have in any way perceived that some event has occurred on the outside that hasn't been perceived on the way. Because if you saw everything that was going on right now on the way, you wouldn't be having these concerns. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. I wrote in my book, Life Leverage, about leveraging your time. Let's be honest, no one is getting less busy. And two things that have really changed my life in terms of information and the speed of information is audiobooks on two times speed and podcasts like this. But there's a company I believe that are really changing the game. They're called Blinkist and they condense the best books into 15 minute summaries. Blinkist have an ever growing library. I personally really like Sapiens. I also like Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And I think you will like it when all my books are on there. 
So right now, for a limited time, Blinkist have a special offer that I've agreed with them just for my podcast listeners. You need to go to Blinkist.com slash Rob to start your seven-day trial. And Blinkist is spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com forward slash Rob to start your seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com forward slash Rob. Right, let's get back into the episode. This is raises an interesting point for me, John, because if I, if I took away society, what other people project or perceive who I should be and how I should be, then I will be driving and striving and thriving, being an entrepreneur for, for 15 hours a day. I just love it. I just love it. It has maybe become an obsession and addiction. I just love it. So I find like inside, I don't want to take a day off. Inside, there's not really much else I want to do. Inside, I don't necessarily want to be that balanced. I mean, I know I have responsibilities that I've committed to and I have children and a family. And, you know, of course, that's important. But all these things other people project on me that I should be and I should do, I don't really want to be and do them. I just want to keep being an entrepreneur all day, every day. And I don't know why I'm trying to find the problem in it. I'm not really. It's just, let, let me link this to something else and then I'll just let, get your take on it, John, because I, I find there's a paradox in personal development. Um, the, the more I understand about myself, the, the, deep, the darker a black hole I feel I can go into. Um, because sometimes I think, well, I've done a lot of personal development. I should know better. I know how to manage my emotions, but I didn't then. So that wasn't really particularly, um, I don't know, controlled or balanced of me. So there's this paradox of personal development where the deeper you get in, it's like the more you learn, the less you realize you don't understand. Um, And so I, I wrestle with that paradox of, just accepting who I am and being okay with my vulnerabilities that were built up when I was young and the needing to be liked and the needing to please with wanting to develop myself as a person and become more self-actualized and increase my strengths and um, become a better human being. So I feel the weight of that paradox sometimes. And then society says, Rob, you should meditate. You know, Rob, you should take a day off social media every week. Um, Rob, you shouldn't be working 15 hours a day. That's unhealthy. And there's all, there's all this going on, Rob. And all what Rob wants to do is be an entrepreneur for 15 hours a day. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a question, John, but I'm sure you've got some thoughts on it. Yes, I do. Um, this is going to probably do it. There's a great book out there and a great video online that anybody could watch. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning piece called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And uh, I've summarized his work over the years and mentioned his work because I think it's brilliant. And I'm going to develop this because that's how I do it. I develop it. So I want you to imagine nomadic man out there in the hunting and gathering phase. And he's out there with his, uh, and he runs into a woman, right? He's Adam and he runs into Eve somehow. He always wondered how they found each other. And then, uh, and then they have a kid, right? Because they figured out how that thing worked. And then um, they start growing a family. And then somehow incest has to come in there because you got to keep multiplying. Otherwise, it doesn't multiply very well if you look at the mathematics. 
And then you have a kinship. And then from kinship, you get township, township, you get community and city. And then, you know, it keeps growing. And what happens is, originally, while you're by yourself, you have to be a generalist and you have to figure out how to survive out there and hunt and gather and do whatever you need to do. And um, you're kind of a generalist. But as you get along, as more and more people come along, somebody says, you know, I'm better at picking the fruit and you're better at weaving a basket and you're better at digging a hole. And, and specialties come in and you lose some of that generalist skill and you start becoming specialized and a bit more dependent on other people. And then what happens is you get to such a critical threshold of dependency that you almost can't survive on your own out there because you've lost some of the natural skills to survive and you're living in an artificial environment. And so as a result of that, uh, the fear of being alienated by people you depend on is very frightening. One of the biggest fears that people have is banishment from a group, abandonment from a group, isolation from a group. Solitary confinement in the prison is one of the most devastating things to people that don't have stability. And so we have a very natural instinct to avoid being rejected and a very strong impulse to fit in that's naturally emerged for centuries, millennium, that's epigenetically coded into our brain. And so that's just part of human nature to fit in. It's a survival of the many. And anytime society is challenged by any form of oppression perceptually, the yearning of that takes them into the migla and accentuates this even further. So again, if we're not in our highest values, we're more vulnerable to this. Now, as a result of that, we created a thing in the brain called brain offloading, decision offloading. Because we started losing our confidence in that skill and they were more adept at it because they did it more, we believed that we'd be wiser to follow their instructions. And we started to give away our power in making decisions and getting other people to make decisions. This starts out in a child at age one, because the first year a child is born, the first year they can poo, they can crap, they can pee, they can scream, they can bite, they can scrub, they, they can do almost anything. And you go, ah, oh, my loving little baby. I mean, they can literally vomit on you and you just, you just don't make much reaction. But the second they stand up and can run around the house, yes, no, yes, no, right, wrong, everything else. And the child all of a sudden has the natural responses and it's frightened. Oh, my God, I can't live out here on my own without my mommy. So mommy now becomes the authority. And now I have to submit to mommy and I have to subordinate to her and I have to inject her values into what I think is good and bad. And create an internal confusion about what I want and what she wants and find some blend of that as I initiate the first step in socialization. Then comes father, then comes preacher, then comes teacher. By age 12, then comes social peer groups. Then by the time we're probably 20, we start having larger peer groups and then that just keeps growing as Kohlberg describes. And eventually we reach a point where we have a major decision in life. Do we, do we subordinate to our mothers and fathers and preachers and teachers individually? Do we subordinate to the collective authority of convention and tradition of the, the ever greater scaled society? Or do we reach what Kohlberg called the last stage and the final stage of transcendence, where we have the, what Emerson calls the, um, to be great is to be misunderstood? Because you have a unique set of values and no two people ever have the exact same set of values. And we all have a yearning to want to make a difference and we can't make a difference fitting in. 
We have to make a difference standing out. But very few people have the courage to stand out because it means a banishment. That's why Emerson said to be great is to be misunderstood. And he also said to envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. And Einstein basically said that my contempt for authorities made me one. So his, he was willing to go against the authorities. At age 18, he went up against a Nobel Prize winner and challenged his work and found it was he was right and the Nobel Prize winner was wrong. And that guy tried to get him assassinated. So he had to deal with that. And he says, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of not knowing the truth. And then I, you realize it. It's only the small group of people that make a difference in the world, and it's only the people that can go through the endurance of ridicule, criticism, etc., and violent opposition until they become self-evident. Most Nobel Prize winners, I've studied thousands of people who have done extraordinary things, and most of them wait 30 to 60 years before they're appreciated for their contribution. So to be great is to be misunderstood along the way and yeah. to be ridiculed. I mean, they burned uh, Giordano Bruno at the stake for saying that we lived in an infinite world with an infinite universe, with infinite uh, beings in the universe. And, and 400 years later, they honored him as one of the greatest geniuses of his time. So with that said, it is natural to have that conflict. Even the, the paradox in philosophy between free will and human will free will and predestination, you might say, or divine will and human will, or determination and determination, or necessity and contingency, the same paradox has occurred. When you infatuate with somebody, you want to change you relative to others. That's why if you give power to somebody, you're going to want to sacrifice you for them. If you resent somebody, you're going to want to sacrifice them for you. When you absolutely are in equilibrium with them, where you're objective with them, and they're not above or below them, then neither opinion is more important than the other and you're resilient. That's why if you live by your highest values, they have more objectivity, you have the highest degree of resilience, and it's the gateway into the transcendent. It's the gateway into not being concerned about what people think. But most people face that paradox, and when they're in the fantasy mode and they want to go after the thing that they're infatuated with, they're going to get smacked by the other side, and they're going to think, oh, I have free will to make a decision to go to the positive, and I get smacked by divine intervention here to get them back onto the center. And so the paradox only resolves when you're living by the highest value. There's no way out of it. That's why I put so much emphasis on that in all my teachings, because all of the philosophical conundrums and paradoxes that people face are solved only in one place at the telos where a person actually lives the most authentic state. Is somebody going to stay there? No, you're not designed to. The moment you're there, you get promoted with evolutionary quantum jumps to the next challenge you face in your life, well, you're then going to go into your amygdala probably to some degree or another, and then you're going to end up in, now you're going to find out what you're made out of. You're going to find out whether or not you're really committed to your mission or whether you're going to worry about fitting into the world. But I'd had rather, it's an old philosophy statement, I'd rather have the whole world against me than my own soul. Mm. Now, you got to also watch out for this. Anytime you hear, I should, I ought to, I supposed to, I got to, I have to, I must, it's not you. You're not authentic there. That's an injected value by an authority that you've subordinated to. I've proven that absolutely. And anytime you say that to somebody else, you should, you ought to. That means For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector. I'm a watch investor. And those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United. 
and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk. And he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496-878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. You're self-righteously projecting your values onto them and trying to get them to live in your values. Both of those are futile, and they're disempowering. And anytime you try to live in other people's values, you're, you're going to face what Einstein said. If you're a cat expecting to swim like a fish, you're going to beat yourself up. If you're a fish expecting to climb a tree uh, like a cat, you're going to beat yourself up. It's only when you honor yourself and live by your own priorities are you going to finally not beat yourself up. But you're also not going to build yourself up because you're not addicted to philias. You're not frightened of phobias. You're just being authentic, objectively embracing both. It's the addiction to fantasies that create nightmares. It's addiction to praise that creates the fear of resentment and rejection. But if we actually go into our mind and go to the moment where and when we perceive ourselves praised and become aware of where and somebody's reprimanding us, we'll see that they're synchronous. And if we go to the moment when we're actually being reprimanded, even in childhood, your therapist got you thinking that's the case, but it's not. It's because you only saw one side. See, when you're in your amygdala, you tend to skew things, and then you think that there's a reprimand without a praise or a praise without a reprimand. You're not fully conscious of both. When you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upside, you're unconscious of the downside. When you're resentful to somebody, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upside. When you're fully aware, you're conscious of both sides, and neither one of them distract you. So if, I, if you go back to your childhood and your mommy was busy or whatever, and if you ask, so who became the new mommy? You'd find out somebody else played that role. And what was the benefit of her doing that? Boom, there's some benefits there. What would be the drawback if mommy was there? Boom, there'd be drawbacks there. Once you balance that out, you realize, I didn't miss anything. There's nothing there to be running away from and dissociating from and fantasizing about the other. But we sometimes get caught in those unconscious awarenesses. And then we have a choice. We can become fully conscious and start asking a new set of questions, which our intuition is trying to, trying to liberate us through. Or we can keep running the stories to our therapist about how that's not working. And we get rutted in a dramatic experience and then get caught in illusions of external sources of our fulfillment. They're, they're the cause of our problem and there's got to be an external cause of our solution. Anytime we blame something on the outside, we're going to automatically be looking for solutions on the outside instead of realizing it was all about our own perceptions. So it is natural to have those two polarities. But I found in myself, I found if I go into both and went into the actual moments and found out where the other side was, my brain started to neutralize the addiction to one side and the subdiction from the other because I realized it was impossible to get one without the other. It's a waste of time. They're, they're okay. both sides of the magnet. So I think this leads on to probably my next two things I wanted to raise with you. So I'm going to say them anyway, because I think you've probably got more to say on this. Um, so I've, and some of this comes from me, John, and some of this comes through the many clients whose 
problems and challenges that I help with come through me too. Um, and certainly since the lockdown, I've been on tripling down on the support for my clients. I've been taking on a lot of helping them. And to a certain degree, that's probably had an impact on me. Increased knowledge, but maybe it's put a challenge on my energy. Um, something I see a lot, I see it in myself, I see it in many of my clients, is this whole thing of a personal brand. So I guess a personal brand is relatively new. Um, although I guess you could call a celebrity before that a personal brand. But um, I've had this thing my whole life where I've felt the need to prove myself to people. It may come from when I was young as a child. It may come from when I was overweight at school. I can track back to certain times. You know, a group of kids have remote, remote control cars. I pretended I had one even though I didn't because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be liked, accepted. And I can track all through my life this strong urge to prove myself. And um, a lot of personal development has helped me maybe balance it. And, and one of the things I've done to test myself is in a room full of very successful people, because I push myself to be around people more successful than me in their area of pursuit a lot. And I hang around a lot of inspiring people. And I challenge myself to say nothing, but to listen to them to take away my addiction from proving myself to others. Because I know that it's there. I feel it strongly. I want to prove myself. Even you saying some things there, John, me just listening and saying nothing and not trying to defend myself a bit or prove myself a bit, that's a challenge for me. But the show's about you, this, not me, so I can do that. But it's still there. It's, it's desperate to come out. Um, but then being a personal brand, to a certain degree, is about telling the world how many books you've written and how many podcasts you've done and how much money you've made and how many companies you own and how many people you've helped. And standing on the stage and speaking and doing what I do like you do, there's, I find there's a certain amount, an element of necessity. It's like your online CV, if you like. Or, um, so I have this paradox going on where some days I just want to go, this is me, this is who I am. I hope you enjoy what I've got to say. Here we go. Not prove myself, not elevate myself not list my whole CV of world records and millions of downloads and YouTube video views. And then other days I really feel, well, actually, every day beneath is the, the, still that yearning and that need to prove myself to the degree that um, when I've done various sessions or tracked back to areas in my life and I've come out of that situation and I've been asked to say, what would I say to that young kid? who's trying to prove himself to his dad or the world, with compassion and love, I would say you've got nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. So again, I'm living in this paradox of I've got nothing to prove. This is me. Take everything away. This is me and I'm fine and I'm good enough. And this strong drive to prove myself. And then you, you add the layers of complication of personal brand and public speaking on podcasting and then the, the, the competitive nature of capitalism and business. Again, it's not really a question, but I know you'll have a lot to say on it. <laughs> um, how do I start that one? You're, I don't know of any human being, as I said earlier, that doesn't want to continue to expand. That's a nature. If we look at that from anthropological perspective, we see that human beings started out, as I said, nomadic, 
and they just kept growing things. I mean, we've gone from individual to family to clan to kinship to, 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 to city to state to nation. We're now at globalization and solarization is coming next. We're going to the, we're going to take on the solar system. It's happening. We're in the actual early stages of solarization. Globalization's happening. Solarization's next. When we get to solarization, I have no doubt we'll go to galactization. So human beings are called to expand their awareness and their potential. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Gratitude for the opportunity to do that and not taking credit or blame is one of the most powerful mechanisms. In the Book of Wealth, and Hubert Hal Bancroft said that the person that ends up wealthy, they have a desire to serve vast numbers of people. They just have a desire to raise the standard and invest in inspiration in the standard. And also they transcended the illusion of good and bad about money. That's the transcendent state. The second we think we're successful and think we're proud and we're puffed up and we're inflated with ourselves and proving something like that, we depurpose ourselves and just get humbled. Pride before the fall. It's a hubris. The moment we beat ourselves up, we repurpose ourselves because the shame makes us go back to priority. So we have a built-in depurposing, repurposing mechanism whenever we're skewed by our amygdala with the addiction to pride and the avoidance of shame. Do we want to show off our face with pride? We want to cover our face with shame. That's the amygdala. Our executive center is a, a, a man on a mission. And there's a difference between a man on a mission than in a man on a passionate pursuit of trying to be proud or try to prove to something. So there's a difference in state, but yet still an accomplishment. We, when Bill Gates says and gets up in the morning and says this question, with the resources I have access to today in my awareness, what is the greatest thing I can do for the greatest number of people in the most effective and efficient way that would inspire me and be meaningful to me? that makes the biggest difference in the world? That's a cool question to ask every day. Mm. It's got a perfect blend of self and other and calling, inspiration. I just, uh, this morning I had a magnificent uh, dialogue with one of the leading rabbis in America. And we discussed all kinds of stuff, cool stuff. And we were discussing the same, same thing. Because here he is, a rabbi leading a, millions of people in, a, in an idea trying to be an intermediate between a God that people are believing in and all different people people about what God is. And he's supposed to represent all the different versions of what they perceive God to be as a representation of that. And the trap of where do I fit into all that? Same paradox. So when we are in our amygdala, we're going to get addicted to, 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 to success. Sharing objective facts about what you've accomplished is not pride necessarily. You're stating some facts. These are factual things, and they assist you in helping serve other people. It, you're not doing it. Rob, I, I know you enough to know that your primary aim is not just to prove what Rob's doing. Rob is doing that too. That's the narcissistic side of Rob. I have that too. You also love watching the lives change and make a difference and brings tears of inspiration to when you hear stories of people, their lives have changed, and they've changed their wealth status. They change their relationship status. They change a person develops status. You also care about human beings. You have an altruistic and a narcissistic side. A person who goes narcissistic goes towards that idea that look at me. The altruistic is don't look at me. The person who puts those together 
just states the facts of objectivity. And these are amazing accomplishments, and they deserve to be known because they assist other people in believing in possibilities because you exemplify what's possible for other human beings. So there's absolutely nothing to be in a paradox over if you keep those objective. But the second you skew towards the pride, look at me, you're going to get humbled by it. And you're going to get criticism to get you back in equilibrium. And the second you're now minimizing it, you're going to get lifted up to try to say, hey, let people know about what you're doing. Nature's going to force you to authenticity and equanimity and equity. Equanimity is where you have neither pride nor shame. You're just being you. Equity is between when you don't put yourself above them or below them. You put them and just realize you want to serve them and you want to serve you and you want to do it in a fair exchange. Your teachings are to make sure that you help them get what they want and you get what you want. What, what, what are you accomplishing if you sacrifice yourself for other people and die? Uh, Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead said that that's the moral, in a sense, uh, uh, suicide. Altruism at the expense of yourself and all other people is suicide. And narcissism at the other extreme is homicide. The hell with them, all for you. Nature's not about either one of those. Nature's about embracing the two of those together. And the second you find those things, you have the greatest fulfillment. Because... Fulfillment doesn't come from just what you receive. Fulfillment doesn't come from just what you do. It's the perfect fair exchange synchronicity of those two that lights up the automatic, automatic inspiration in our hearts because we feel that we're making a difference and we're getting doing something meaningful. It inspires us to do it and it meets other people's needs. The perfect balance of that is what gives us the most fulfillment. So you're automatically forced into that center. You can't escape it. You get a little cocky, you'll get humbled. You attract an events to humble you. You get down, people lift you up and say, hey, you're greater than that. Nature's going to make sure you do it. Your physiology is going to give you feedback health-wise. All the symptoms of our body is trying to get us authentic. Our intuition is trying to whisper to us to get us there. Our, psych, our sociology and friends and enemies and people that rape, praise and reprimand us, our reprimanders are not our enemies. They're homing us down from our prides. And our, and our people lifting us up are not our, our friends. They're just lifting us out of our down and putting us back into equilibrium where our authentic self is. Even our marriage, the purpose of marriage is not happiness or the fantasies. It's about being authentic. And even the, the tragedies or comedies in our life are feedback mechanisms to make sure that we get back to authenticity. And that's the same paradox. All three of your questions are leading to the same answer. If we live congruently by our highest values, we have the highest probability of having the most fulfillment, being most inspired, have the most meaning, have the least volatilities, have the least addiction to praise, the least addiction to success, and the most missionful focus on making a complete balance of us and them. Self and other. It's the old self and other paradox. The primordial original sin of Christianity, as they called it, is the paradox in the existential world of self and other. When those are blended and seem not separable, you found a point where you have poise and presence and purpose and power and patience and priority. Thank you, John. So in this lockdown, um, quite a few people have been experiencing more criticism. You know, there's been a, a bigger leak of emotion. I mean, not everyone will experience this, but certainly entrepreneurs are facing it with those criticizing people for, you know, marketing and selling through this time. I think there's a lot of scared people out there. I think there's a lot of bored people out there. Put fear and boredom and social media together and you've got a dangerous triad there. And certainly quite a lot of my clients have been experiencing higher numbers of criticism, maybe refund requests and people getting quite um, angry and upset. Um, and 
they're finding it hard. Um, I've certainly got to the level, John, where everything I do gets criticism on a public stage. Um, my sister needed an emergency kidney operation. There's a long history of my family working together. And in my 20s, me actually finally flying the nest and not being reliant on my family. And my sister still has some reliance. Um, but she was very courageous and decided not to ask me for money for this kidney operation, even though I could easily have afforded it. She put a just giving page together. She didn't want the money from me. She sent me the link. She raised a few hundred pounds together. I put it out my, to my community. We raised 17,000 pounds in a few hours and, and um, got it done. And I got a lot of criticism for that, John. When I say a lot, you know, I got some aggressive, angry criticism. I should have paid the money. Why did I put it out on my social media? You, you, you're supposed to be a multimillionaire. Well, you can't afford a 17,000 pound operation. Um, I've just done a £20,000 raise for the NHS through my community. I'm going to get criticism for that too because, of, you know, because I've got a big ginger beard or whatever. Um, and there's a lot, there seems to be entrepreneurs that are having to deal with a lot more criticism and challenge right now, maybe because of this natural order. How do we deal with that when it's greater than maybe we've experienced it before? Okay, good question. <laughs> In the breakthrough experience that I've been teaching now for 31, almost 32 years, one thing I'm absolutely certain about that I've been doing and I've watched in thousands and thousands of people is there is no praise without reprimand or reprimand without praise. So if you're seeing one without the other, you're choosing to focus on one and not look at the other. If I, if I sat and took you through right now, in fact, you might have, I'll do it. Let's do it right now. Let's do it. Whatever it is. <laughs> go, to, go to a moment where and when you perceived yourself being criticized, reprimanded, ridiculed, rejected by some individual. Go to an exact moment where you're perceiving that. Yeah, okay, got it. Got it. Okay, and where are you exactly? When you actually have the perception. I need to go to the moment of perception. It's in the moment of perception where conscious and unconscious information split. Go to the moment okay. of uh, I'm in the car. I'm in, in the back of my car. My driver's taking me back from London to Peterborough. Okay. Okay. And where, when was this? Um, oh, let's say two months ago. Okay. Is this morning, evening, afternoon? What time? Uh, afternoon. It's, it's quite a nice day. Okay, you're there? Yeah. You can see where you are. You yeah. can see who you are. And at that moment, who specifically is criticizing you? Um, so there's two threads that have gone off on social media um, about how I'm disgusting. Which one, which one is bothering you at that moment? At that moment, there's one particular thread in a group. Okay, so there's a, group, a public thread in a group. Or is, it, is it one individual leading a group or is it actually a group that's criticizing you? It's one individual that's posted, though I can't remember the name. Okay, so go to that moment where that individual's rejecting you, criticizing you. Yeah. Okay, you there? Yeah. Okay, he's criticizing you. You got the where and the when, and the content is his verbal criticism, or, or online at least. And the context, what's he criticizing you for? Um, Raising money for, for your sister? For not 
giving my sister the money for her operation myself. So he's having, he's projecting his values onto you. Yeah. Living his values. Yeah. And his moral constraints. And anytime you don't fulfill his values, he's going to react and project more moral constructs on you. Right. Yeah. At that moment, go to that moment, close your eyes, go to the moment you actually look at that on your, on your, your phone. Yeah. Okay. At that exact moment, when he's criticizing you for not giving money to your sister, who is praising you and acknowledging you for helping your sister the way you did it? Oh, hundreds of people. Okay. I want you to be a present at the very same moment. Who is doing that at that exact same moment? Not 10 seconds later, not earlier, but at the exact same moment, who is in your consciousness that is supporting you and acknowledging and praising you for what you're doing for your sister at that moment? I can think of lots of people. Okay, let's, let's add them up. Who are they? Okay, so I, I, I'm in, a, um, I guess, a collective, a group of peers, business owners, who you know, or relatively successful, depending on how you define that. But think of at least 10 of them who said it was okay. a pretty amazing thing. And they all, gave, they all gave like 500 quid each. Good. Who else? Who one, else? Of my cli- one of my clients was sat in the car with me and she said it was amazing what I did. Okay. Can you, can you see that the moment you actually receive the criticism on the thing, can you see you're actually feeling a little bit proud of what you did? Oh, well, do you know what? I'd just spoken to my sister on the phone and uh, it, it was the most emotional phone call I've ever had with my sister. Okay, and I, so I had, I had some high. elation, yeah. You, you were high and elated. Yeah. Can you see you were a little bit proud of what you did? Yeah, I was quite proud of what I did, yeah. Now, I want you to understand this. You don't ever, ever receive criticism unless you're above equilibrium. Criticism is designed to equilibrate an inflated state of mind. And it's a quantum entangled sociological event as a mechanism to get us out of elation and manic uh, expansion and get us back into authenticity. The moment you feel above equilibrium and go into pride and get addicted to that high, you attract a criticism from society to get you authentic again. If it hurts for the criticism, it's because it feels good to feel the pride. And the addiction to the pride makes the other painful. But the other painful is necessary to break the addiction to the pride. Okay. So I hear you. I want you to see that. Can you see that those are simultaneous events? Yeah, I definitely can. I, okay. I, I, I completely understand there is no praise without criticism. Okay. So watch now. Let me, let me finish this now. Yeah. Every moment in our life from the time we're conceived and after even birth all the way to where we are today, every moment that we perceive one side without the other synchronously there, when in fact there's always both sides, but we just don't become fully conscious. Yeah. Our subjective bias of our amygdala, we bias it. We see only one side. Every time we do, we store those memories of incomplete awarenesses in the subconscious mind, and they cause a desire to get that high again and a desire to get that rid of that pain again. The moment we go in there and take each episode 
through our life and find where the other side was, the more we do that, the more we calm down that addiction to one side and subdiction from the other, and the more we realize it's impossible to get one without the other. There's no point even trying. It's a waste of time. Okay, so can I ask a couple of follow-on questions from this? Yes. So are you saying I should or you're not saying should, but I definitely, it was one of the sweetest feelings I've had in a long time. It was a rare sense of deep satisfaction. I was moved to tears seeing us raising that money for my sister so much and maintaining her dignity and me not just slapping 17 grand on the table. Great. Are you saying I was too elated and therefore that's why I attracted criticism? They're simultaneous events. Nature doesn't have causality. It's a causal. Entanglement is a causal event in human society. So it's not that I got up and then I attracted it. As you go up, it's attracting. It's a simultaneous event to keep you centered. There's nothing going on in our lives except that which makes us authentic. We really grasp the meaning and depth of that. It's profound. Now. It's not the idea that you did something for your your sister that's led to this issue. It's if you had been grateful for the opportunity to do it and stayed in that moment of inspiration and and tear, there wouldn't be an attraction to the other because you wouldn't be any way of excited or elated or proud. But the second you feel good about yourself doing it, that's when you attract the criticism. Right. So instead of being grateful for the opportunity to do it, I felt great. Uh, I felt good about what I did. So that became too self-centered. Yeah. You take credit, you attract blame. That's the yeah. law. That's right. a, a proverb that was came from a green book by Palmer many, many years ago. The second you take credit, you attract blame. The second you take blame, you attract credit to make sure you transcend the illusions of credit and blame. I'm going to, I'm going to shatter some, some stuff here, if you don't mind. Is that, I, do, I, just, I don't mind at all. Sorry, go for it. This is a sh- shattering moment. Um, if you study anthropologically the development of morals and ethics in society, you realize that it emerged as a fear of death. This is where the denial of death by the Pulitzer Prize winner Becker was talking about. We assume that life is, if we're alive, that's good. Anything that gives us life is good. And anything that brings death is bad in our society, socially by human beings. Survival is good. Extinction is bad. Pretty hard to break that. That's a natural inclination of our impulses and instincts as a survival species, as a human. But we have a transcendental mind that's beyond that, that can go beyond that and have meaning and extract meaning. The thing that distinguishes us from the animals is the ability to extract meaning out of things. Not just teleological meaning, but meaning by bringing us back into center. So to extract meaning means to find in the pauses, the highs, what are the downsides, and to find in the lows, the upsides, and to bring us back into the mean. Just like an oscillating stock market, there's a mean. The mean is the mean between the ups and downs. The second we can extract meaning out of things and center ourselves and reach a transcendental equanimity state, we're not touched by the attachments of the Buddhist distractions of pleasure and pain, happy and sad. We're centered. Morality emerges from our animal nature. But what's happened is the people who rule the society using opium of the masses sell people on the fantasy that 
in artificial anthropomorphic deities to give rise through their authority, these rules of morality to govern people that are disempowered to keep them trapped in their conformity so they're easier to manage. If you study the history of this, you'll see this in religions, you'll see it in politics, you'll see it in everything. Very few people have the courage to be authentic. Jumping off bungee jumps, walking on coals, climbing rope trips and things like that, that's insignificant compared to having the courage to be authentic. That's the real test of a master. Can you be authentic? Authentic knows that you're both hero and villain. You're both saint and sinner, both virtue and vice. And technology is forcing us into transparency to finally realize there is no heroes without villains. There is no saints without sinners. These are illusions that the animal nature strives to try to put on an act that I'm going to be this way or that way. It's imposter syndrome. I'm not a kind person or a cruel person or a nice person or a mean person. I'm a human being. If you support my values, I'll play kind and nice and generous. You challenge my values, I'll be cruel, cold, and uh, just stingy. I have both sides. I don't have one side without the other. And I have no desire to be one side without the other because you need both for maximum growth. Maximum growth and development occurs at the border of those two, not the fantasy of one side. So the hypocrisy of morals get injuncted into our life by outer authorities who are ignorant, who are parroting what somebody else has taught, which is an oppressive system that we've bought into in society, and then we try to fit in. And having the courage to stand out is very, very difficult. But the people who break the necessity of getting feedback from the outside, but learn how to give themselves governance from the inside, are the ones that make it. Okay. There's no escapes that path that I know of. And so the idea of trying to improve yourself is a false construct. I don't teach self-improvement. It's a false fantasy, multi-trillion dollar lie. And let me explain why. I did a presentation one time on how to be more effective and efficient at work, right? And there's a guy that attended this program, and uh, he went and just sapped it up, went in there, went into his business, and started living more efficient and more effective at business. He got a promotion. He got raised. He got acknowledged. He got all this. His boss thought, man, ever since you went to that seminar, you've really improved in the boss's value system. But the more he was doing that, the more he wanted to work and the more he wanted to focus on that. And nature drew into his life his disowned part as a marriage partner who had a high value on family and children and spending and consuming. And so she said, well, every time you went, to, ever since you went to that damn seminar, you have lost focus on what's important and you've disimproved. In her value system, he disimproved. In the boss's value system, he improved. And nature has a full spectrum of value systems in the world, and it's impossible to please everybody because there is no way, because they all have a spectrum of values. And we need both sides of those values to build and destroy, to remodel the universe, to keep it going and resilient, to adapt in a changing world relative to astronomical movements. So we have to have all those variations. And if you try to please everybody, it's impossible. It's a futile attempt. The desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is the source of human suffering. That's what passion meant, suffering. Compassion, by the way, means what? To suffer with somebody. And when the guy was sitting there and thought, why didn't you just give the, the, your sister money? That's because he's feeling guilty about something he didn't do. He sees you doing it. He brings up a wound in his past, and he's now wounded and now having compassion for his sister because of something in his own life projected onto you. That's nothing to do with you. Mm. 
you're in your in your own life. I, I have people come up to me and one day, this happened within seconds of each other. It's quite funny. It was actually simultaneously, but the phone wouldn't allow me to do two calls at the same time. I get this call from um, Perth, Australia. I said, Dr. Demartini, I'm a student in school. I was told you're doing a program in Perth on wealth building, and I'd really like to attend, but I can't afford it. I'm a poor student. You know, I can't afford the whole program. Uh, can you give me a student discount? And I said, no, we'll give you a student discount. I'll suggest that you go and get my book, How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven. Read that. When you've done that, if you applied any of it, really value the work, you'll then make enough money to be able to buy my, my financial bundle. And that'll be three or $400. And when you've got to that, you will have no problem coming to my seminars. That's my half of suggestion there. But I'm not going to devalue myself because somebody that has a low value on money is going to want everybody who has money to come down to their level and they're going to label them greedy and stingy and, and too expensive. They're trying to bring them down to their level because everybody wants to project their own values onto people. The second I got off the phone, the guy had been trying to ring me. So he's trying to reach me at the exact same moment, but he couldn't get through. A guy from down in the Gold Coast of Australia named Paul, who had a penthouse, a wealthy guy, he said, John, I hear you coming to Brisbane. I said, yeah. He says, uh, I'm here. You're doing a financial seminar. I said, yeah. He said, uh, sign me up, man. I said, how much? He said, how much is it? And I said, well, it's only 1200 bucks. He said, man, that's for two days? Shit, that's cheap. Man, I feel like I would get more than that. I ought to give you more than that because I want to get more out of it. The more I give you, the more I'll get back out of it. And, and so he, he had an idea that that's cheap and that's, that's over generous. Right back to back, I saw those. And they were trying to come in at the same time. And I saw that both of those are pairs of opposites. And if I let either of those distract me, one will exaggerate me, one will minimize me. My job is to stay focused. Chop wood, carry water, as they say. A man on a mission doesn't get distracted by pride or shame. Keo, who is on the board of um, Berkshire Hathaway, who, is a, who ran, ran Coca-Cola Company at one time, he said, I'm leery of people who think they're successful. They're on their way down. But I'm interested in a man on a mission. Yeah. Okay, so this has raised something else. Um, and, you know, you said about self-improvement. It's a, I'll use the word fantasy or... I think you said a trillion dollar lie. Of awareness and influence is totally possible. Quantitatively, we can expand our awareness and we can expand our influence. We can measure that. But improvement is a moral construct. Right. Better, best, worst, yeah. good, bad, right, wrong. Those are all moral constructs that are hypocritical. You cannot break through the hypocrisies of those. So you're saying, did you say quantitative or qualitative? quantitatively, we can expand your awareness. I, you can come here and listen to me right now. We can do our talk together and people can listen to it and they can expand their awareness. Yeah. But no matter what they do, there's going to be people labeling good and bad along the journey. Yeah. Because so, this, is, this is another paradox I feel. You know, I said at the start where sometimes I feel like personal development can get to the point where you unearth so much. It's not necessarily better anymore. It's just different. And sometimes you can be so aware, it actually can be a bit of a torture. Um, and I always remember something you said to me. Um, we had a chat in one of your favorite hotels in London when my um, son was about to be born. I remember it very clearly, and I was talking about um, uh, my fantasy of raising him and teaching him. 
and you put me back into humility very quickly by saying, uh, <laughs> get rid of that fantasy because he'll teach you as much as you teach him. And I've wrestled with this idea of being a parent and raising children. And we, of course, put our values into our parents, sorry, into our children. We project our values into our community, into our customers, into our followers. Um, and sometimes we perceive we do wrong by our children. And you said to me, I remember you saying this to me really clearly. You said that you, you don't make any mistakes with your children. And this has been something that's very challenging for me to get my head around, this whole desire for, let's say, more, self, more awareness, you, to use your language. I was using the self-improvement because it's a label, but also the simultaneous awareness that when you ch change or learn or grow, you're not necessarily better. You're just different. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I'd let, I'm going to develop that because a bunch of things pop in my mind. I was teaching a course in Houston, Texas, in my office, actually, many years ago, long time ago. And there was two ladies sitting next to each other. And uh, Pat and uh, uh, what's her last name? Um, well, I'll think of it. Margarita. I have to remember the name. Yeah. And Margarita was, had, this is when the cell phones were coming out, right? They had the big clunky cell phones because it's back a few years. And Marguerite gets a call right in the middle of the seminar that her son just got caught by the police, had skipped school, stole a car, got caught with pot, and was in jail. And when she hears this, she gets off the thing, she's in shock, she starts crying and leans on the table and starts crying. And Pat's sitting next to her going, what, what's going down, Margarita? And she just, she had to cry for a minute. We just kind of stopped the seminar for a second. And all of a sudden, she, she gets up and she's in tears and she says, oh, I worked. I wasn't there for my son. I should have been there for my son. I fucked up. I really messed up. And she was beating herself up, royalty. And I'm sitting there with a, a grin on my face. Because there's always a greener pasture. People always have a greener pasture. And all of a sudden, Pat Mack slaps her across the face, across the back of the head. I said, Margarita, stop that. That's bullshit. And she looks up, and it's a Pat interrupt. And she looks up at Pat, and Pat says to her, Margarita, stop that. I stayed home every day of my friggin' son's life. I was there like... I took him places. I took him to this. I took him to that. I did that for him. I was there every friggin' day of the thing. I sacrificed my career and I was right there for my son. And at the exact same age, a few weeks ago, my son stole a car, skipped out of school and got caught with pot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there chuckling, just sitting there watching the universe work, doing its magnificence because the more she's beating herself up, people are supporting and it, you just watch nature do its job. And Margarita heard that. And then I said, and I spoke, and I said, listen, I know both your sons. A decade from now, you're all going to be proud of your son, and then you're going to be ashamed of your son, and you're going to be proud of your son. But please note this. I, I want everybody to get this, whoever's listening out there. Don't ever think you're proud of your child unless you're taking credit for what you think you did to get them there. You're never proud of their actions. Pride is not what they did. Pride is what role you think you played in what they just did. And the second you're proud, they're going to humble you. 
<laughs> They're going to humble you. Love them. As Cahill Gibran said, they come through you, not to you. You don't own them. Love them, but don't watch out for taking credit or blame. Now, you only want to rescue them from things that you've been wounded by that you want to protect yourself from having to face projected onto them many times. So a lot of stuff we think is caring about our kids is really just protecting ourselves from facing our own wounds. And whatever we repress, we're epigenetically coded into our children to make sure they express what we repress just to make sure we clear our wounds. That's why they're our teachers. But stop and think about that. If you're in business and you think you know better than your customer, what happens? They'll humbleize you. You get humbled. And what happens if you think you know more than all your staff? They'll bring you right back down. (laughs) You get castrated, right? In the same home. You come home and actually think you're better than your wife. What happens? (laughs) You're not doing podcasts this evening, if that's the case. You're doing podcasts this evening. Now you wake up and you can't, can't, you're not sure how to go and urinate anymore. (laughs) That's done. So what happens is you're designed by nature to be humbled with criticism, rejection, reprimands, the second you're above equilibrium, that is the normal, healthy, biological, sociological response. If I walk in a room, imagine me walking in a room to a group of people, and I say, I'm walking in, and all of a sudden a person says, you know, Dr. Gimarty, you're amazing, and he starts praising me. You're just amazing. You're, you're this and that and that, and just puts me up on a pedestal. If I go in there and I go, well, thank you, and I humble myself, and I minimize myself lower than what he thinks I am, what will he keep doing? He'll keep, He'll keep praising, praising me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happens if I walk in and he says, man, you're, Dr. Martin, you're amazing, everything else. And I walk in, I go, I'm more amazing than you can even comprehend. You don't have the capacity to comprehend how amazing I am. <laughs> I go puff myself up and think I'm better than he thinks I am. What will he do immediately? Asshole. Right yeah. He'll immediately do it. Because it's built in automatically in society. There's a homeostatic mechanism to make sure we get centered. So criticism is not our enemy. Criticism is a feedback system to make sure we're not addicted to praise and fantasies. Yeah. To make sure we're objective with our goals and a man on a mission, not a man on a fantasy, a a passionate fantasy for success and arrogance and pride before the fall. So basically, all criticism and all praise is merely feedback. It's homeostat. Yeah. And then I, if I took you through every moment, pick a moment when somebody's praising you, really praising you, thinking, man, you're amazing. Go to a moment when they, they got you up on a pedestal. Do you know what? I tend, I tend not to remember those. Yeah, but go, let's do this one. Go to a moment when you felt I am doing something amazing and you felt like puffed up and proud. Watch what happens. You're, you have a built-in thermostat inside your psyche. Go to a moment you felt proud. Can't think of a specific time. Think of a time when you thought I'm successful or I've done something or I've achieved something and you bought into somebody's acknowledgement and you were proud. Okay, yeah, I can think of a time. Yeah. Good. So go to the moment. Where are you? No, it's not really pride. It's more a sense of accomplishment for a, ch- a difficult challenge that we overcame. Okay, let's say you're elated with yourself and you thought oh, I did I did it. I did it. I, I'm proud of myself. I accomplished it. I want you a moment when you're excited and feeling like you've done something and you're proud of yourself or puffed up a bit. Don't really let, let myself get like that that much. 
probably studied too much of your work, John. <laughs> well, if you get proud, let, let me give you a story that'll, that'll, that I learned 38 years ago now. So it's been 38 years when I learned. Okay, I've got one. Sorry, John, I've got one. Um, so last night I did a live stream raising money for the NHS um, and we hit the 20 grand target. I did a live stream and got probably about this new feature called stars on Facebook. We got about nearly 3000 pounds from that, just doing a bit of a Q and a, and I must admit, I felt very good about myself. I felt I've got this new stars feature. Only 20 people in the world have got it. I've been innovative on this charity raise. We've hit it together. Go to the exact moment you felt that you were a little above equilibrium. I did something. Yeah, I, prob I probably took a screenshot of it. I've got okay, a screenshot. Go to that moment. Go to the moment and you felt proud. Yeah, felt okay. Like I did something. Yeah. Okay, you there? Yeah. Okay, what specifically did you think you did that got you there? That you're proud did, of? Did alive and got some people together and created a bit of energy to raise some money on a new platform. Okay. Cause pride is always based on a specific action by you that you perceive cause more benefits than drawbacks, more gains and losses, more ups and downs. Right. Shame is exactly the opposite. Something you've done by you. Now yeah. go to that moment right there at that moment. Yeah. As you're doing that and you're looking at those, that, that response, what are you ashamed of? What are you feeling? and not feeling proud of, and you're feeling ashamed of at that moment. If you felt proud that you raised money for this particular group, and that's business related or financial related, it's very commonly, it'll be relationship related, health related, family related, where the shame will be. You're trying to think it through. Don't think, just go to the moment of perception. Our intuition knows our unconscious side. Because in order to be proud, we have to be conscious of our upsides, unconscious of downsides. And to be shamed, we have to be conscious of our downsides, unconscious of our upsides. In order to feel true to ourselves, we become fully conscious of both sides synchronously. So at that moment, when you're feeling that like you did it, you actually did something quite amazing, which is fact. Where were you feeling shame that you didn't acknowledge somebody, didn't include somebody, weren't able to be there for somebody, or didn't get to do something at that moment? Where was the other side? Go into the moment. Close your eyes and go to the moment of perception. You can't think this through. It's got to be at the moment of perception. If you go into the moment when you're actually thinking, I did something, I achieved something, what is it you didn't, you overlooked and you didn't achieve that you beat yourself up about at that moment? I feel like that there is a constant guilt towards wanting to help more people. Um, I can't think of any one specific at, person. At that, at that moment, did you feel that even though you did achieve that, it's not as much as you hoped? Oh, definitely. I mean, you, yeah, 100%. Okay. I want you to know this. Please get this. The moment we allow ourselves to get up and proud, we have a built-in thermostat to focus and bring up into our consciousness the stuff we didn't feel we lived up to to homeostate us back into center so we go back to authenticity again. Yeah. Built in. Yeah. I, I, can, I, I can feel some things, some maybe guilt of not doing more, achieving more, or helping more people. 
Yeah. Um, so the moment you actually think you've achieved something, you have the other side automatically built up. Yeah. It's, it's in the brain. It's called an anti-memory. Whatever we have as an episodic memory, an episodic memory has a where, a when, a content, a context, a who, a why, and a what. And whenever we do that and it's skewed to one side, the opposite anti-memory immediately comes in to balance out chemistry and electronics in the brain. Otherwise, we have noise. So it's automatically there. Our intuition knows it, but our intellect will block it out with our bias because we want to, we're never in that feeling good and we want to avoid that pain. Okay. We automatically have it though. Let's go. Let's do a quick fire now, John, because I don't want to um, overstay my welcome here, but we've got some questions coming in and I have some nice quick fire ones we do at the end of our podcast. Um, I need to ask you this question again, because you're the only person in a hundred interviews I've done for this particular show that answered this question this way. And I want to ask it again and see if you answer the same thing again or something different. What is one thing wrong with the world that you would like to change? In Leibniz, German philosopher Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who also developed the calculus in a different way at the same time, debatably with Newton. He wrote a book called The Discourse on Metaphysics. And the very first paragraph, the first chapter, the first part of his book, he basically said that there was a divine perfection, a divine beauty, a divine order, a divine love, a divine magnificence in the universe that few people ever get to know. But those that do, their lives are changed forever. Everything is on the way. So it's not something on the external world that needs changing. It's my perception of anything that I think does, because that's the illusion. And the moment I have a shift in my perception, the law of heuristic escalation and, and entanglement automatically shifts the dynamic. Because when I, it's just like when you love people who they are, they turn into who you love. Mm. Yeah. We love the universe the way it is. It, it does quite amazing for you. All the things that we think are out of the line that are disordered may not be. Because we have these events we think are terrible. And then day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we look back and we go, thank God that occurred. And then we think we have these things that are terrific and we find out, oh, that is no, there's chaos. Can I just they jump in? One, I just want to jump in and ask one thing about that because – I think I'm leaning towards that discovery for myself, but I just need to ask one thing. What about rape? What about murder? How do we, how do we give that divinity and love and perfection? Well, I know that's not something easy. You may need me to give you some more time on that one because I do that every weekend in the breakthrough, as you know. In the breakthrough experience, I deal with rape case. I've dealt with 1,300 cases of rape now. Wow. And I deal with death every week. Every week I deal with that. Mm. We get attached to form, but I'm going to make a statement that's not going to be understood in five seconds, but I'll say it anyway, and people can get controversial all they want about it. Come to the breakthrough experience if they want to see it live. But as long as we're addicted to all of the behaviors that's called the anti-rape, we will attract the rape, not randomly, but as a mechanism to keep us centered. And I know that sounds crazy but to some people, but if you break rape down, if you just put rape up there, you're not going to see what rape is. But if you actually ask the person who's been raped and ask what specific trait, action, or inaction did this rapist demonstrate or display that you resent, you'll find out that they'll put control, uh, deceit, uh, threat, um, violence, uh, penetration, uh, robbing of innocence, or whatever they do. They'll list a series of 
anywhere from nine to 18 different things, most cases, the average is 11, of things that they perceive this rapist just did. And I can't, and it can't be what they felt from the rapist. It has to be what the actual action of the rapist, the trait, action, action rapist. When we go in there and find out where have you threatened somebody, where have you tried to control somebody, where have you tried to take people's innocence, where have you tried to deceive somebody, and have them go through in their life and own all those, it's humbling. If they go in and find the benefits of each one of those, not the whole rape thing, but the individual ones, there's actually upsides to it that they don't see initially. But the big one in there, when I asked the question, at the exact same moment when they were trying to control you, who has given you too much freedom and who are you elated with giving you freedom? Because the addiction to freedom attracts constraint. The addiction to innocence attracts the promiscuity of the pedophile. The second you get addicted to one side, you attract the opposite side to break the addiction. Society has always condemned half of it because of moral hypocrisies. But whatever collective society represses, selective society always expresses. I've asked thousands of women, how many of you have ever had fantasy about being thrown on a bed and being taken, uh, you know, passionately, sexually? Most hands up go up. Occasionally, a woman will look around and be afraid to put her hands up. But most of them will go up. They go, yeah, I've had those fantasies. And then and, uh, I said, how many men have had those fantasies? Almost all the hands go up. I said, whatever you don't do, you fantasize, don't do collectively and repress it because of moral constructs. Society automatically, whatever is collected to repress, gets concentrated and expressed in society by the law of heuristic escalation. It's a basic law of social dynamics. So that person over there that's doing it is actually allowing the constraint over on this side, the moral idealism over here is a byproduct of the moral extreme on the other side, concentrated. Once we put a bigger picture together and start taking it through, I guarantee you, you can take a person from a point from being a victim of history to a master of destiny and finding out how it serves them and get on and do something amazing in life. We have people right there in the UK that have been through this process. One has been honored by your own queen because of her impact after we broke her through that. And now she's doing something amazing with her life from it. It's not what happens to us. It's what we decide to do with it, how we perceive it. So to go around, going around and make a blanket statement, it's all evil or it's all good, to me is very limited thinking. The question is, is why do people do what they do? And what's drawing us into it? I had one lady, I first started studying rape when I was in my 20s, early, about 20, I think it was, 21, when I noticed that out of an entire dormitory, one woman got raped four times. What, nobody else got raped in the dormitory. One woman got four times. And I asked, why is that? What is it? She was a friend of my girlfriend's. Why has she gotten raped four different times? Is she the most attractive? Is she the most luring? Is it? And I was wondering what it was. And I started probing into the mystery of that. And that's why I've developed some of the tools that I've done. Because there's an addiction to one side draws in the other. If you're addicted to protection, you attract violence. If you're addicted to peace, you attract conflicts. Whatever you're addicted to that keeps you juvenilely dependent and makes you stop your growth process, the more you attract the opposite to make sure you grow again. Because if we go and have somebody support us all the time and then disabling us and making us dependent, we don't grow. So we attract the bully to get our ass kicked to make us stand up and become entrepreneur-like. Nature has a magnificent way of giving you prey and predator. If you get prey, food, the sweetness, and you don't have predator, you get gluttonous and fat, you lose your fitness. If you get predator without prey, you get uh, emaciated and you end up starving. 
But if you get a balance of prey and predator, support and challenge, the kind and the cruel, and all the pairs of opposites synchronously, you maximize your fitness. That's what's been shown biologically. And what happens is whatever collective society condemns, they breed. And so moral constructs about how we're supposed to be this innocent little person increases the probability. I saw that in Sydney, Australia, big time, the Catholic Church, the source of the guy that just almost went to prison, by the way, promoted a thing about seven years ago where all 12 to 15-year-old girls were supposed to stand, 15,000 12 to 15-year-old girls had to stand in a park and declare they were going to be a virgin until they were married, publicly. The suicide rate, the rape, the incest, and pedophilia skyrocketed in that group because they're trying to promote a friggin' idealism, a fantasy of artificial morality onto a society that always has a pair of opposites. So are so, you say, so are you saying if we are overly up, overly down, seeing overly upside or overly downside, we will attract the opposing to get us back in the center. Right. And so wisdom is what seeing the upside in the downside and the downside in the upside. Yeah. I'm going to do one more thing. If you don't mind, I got to oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm happy. <laughs> okay. So 38 years ago, I was about to say this 38 years ago, I was in my office and I had a day where I, I think I saw 78 patients. I was only working from nine to 1045 and three to 445 each day. And I was highly intensely efficient and I had a very powerful day. I had 40 patients, 78 patients, and I collected a lot of money, saw a lot of patients, got a lot of praise. Man, I was, I thought I would grab my, my assistant's hand and, and say, touch me and you'll feel healed. You know, I was, I was on a puffed up, exaggerated position. And I always thought, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really amazing guy, right? I, I'm puffing myself up with inflated ego. On the way home, I'm thinking, I'm bad. I'm cool. I get home and my wife schmucks me, just absolutely just nails me. I didn't do this. I forgot this. It just, just squashed me. Now, at this time, 38 years ago, I was still into positive thinking. And, and I was just finished reading a book called Toxic Relationships, which I don't recommend if, unless you want to have bipolar condition. And I, uh, I read this and it says that toxic relationships, if you're up, they, they knock you down. And if you're down, they support you. Well, that's actually what nature intends. But people that want to support without challenge and positive without negative and kind without cruel are addicted to one side. And when the other side smacks, it really hurts. And they label them toxic because they're basically addicted to tonic. So in the process of doing it, I came home and she just nailed me. And I was squashed. And I didn't want to talk to her at the night. When I went to bed, we were like, in not, we were not 69, we were 96. <laughs> and, uh, and I hardly slept that night because whenever you're highly resentful or highly infatuated, it occupies space and time in your mind and runs you because you have noise in the brain because you're not being truthful. So I then woke up trashed, went in the office and had one hell of a trough day. I mean, cancellations, people bitching. It was just, it was, it was just humbling to shit. When I came home that night, she gave me a massage, lifted me up, and I'm thinking, well, there's that toxic relationship. But I thought, isn't that interesting? I'm now on my down low, and now she's lifting me up. When I'm really up, she's knocking me down. And for some reason, an intuitive pop occurred. 
So I started doing a crazy experiment, psychotic experiment that only I would probably do. I started to pay close attention and start recording what was going on and what was happening at home and how they were related. And within a very short period of time, I started to create a self-governance system, which I have right in this book underneath this computer still to this day. When I was up, I looked at the symptoms of me. I was thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking of my staff. I was not thinking about my patients. I was thinking about how important I was. And so I asked questions. Who did I forget the name of today? What staff member did I not thank today? What procedure did I overlook? What paperwork did I not complete? What uh, patient's name did I not remember? What anniversary birthday or special event did I not mention and talk about? And I started asking 25 questions that humbled me from my cockiness. And I didn't stop until I got tears of gratitude for the opportunity to serve those people. And the moment I hit that tear of gratitude, I knew I was centered again. And then I drove home and I had this extraordinary loving relationship, heart-opened, centered relationship. It wasn't building me up or putting me down. And then if I had a down day, I would ask, who did I serve today? Whose paperwork did I do? I realized a very simple law of the universe that if you don't govern yourself, you get governed by the outside. And the leaders govern themselves from within, from their executive center. And the people who can't do that get governed from without. And their physiology will hit them. Their psychology with intuition will hit them. If they don't listen to that, their sociology will hit them with friends and enemies, you know, praise and reprimand. If they still don't get it, tragedy and comedy starts hitting. It gets louder as you become more polarized. That's a very uh, worthy thing for me to learn 38 years ago. It changed my life. Mm. I still have that in this book today. Okay. Right, we'll do four more, and let's make these... Super quick. Um, best advice you've ever received? The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasy you'll ever impose on yourself. The worst advice you ever received? Try to be somebody you're not. There's a question that goes around a lot of podcasts, which I've reversed to be a bit more disruptive. And they often say, what advice would you give your younger self? So I'm going to reverse that. What advice would you give your older self, yourself 10, 15 years from now? What advice would you give the older, John? Thank you for following your inspiration, your mission, and your heart. Okay. What is one of the best books you've ever read? This is from Dan Gladstone, who's on the life. Uh, The greatest two books that I encourage people to read is Centopian Volumes 1 and 2 by Britannica, written by Mortimer Adler, edited by Mortimer Adler. It's two of the best books. What it is is a summary of the topics discussed by the greatest minds in the Western world for the last 2,700 years, the greatest thinkers, greatest philosophers, greater contributors thought leaders on the planet summarized in two volumes, 1600 pages. It's the best two books I could recommend. Thank you, John. Um, This podcast has the word disruptive in it. The disruptive entrepreneur. What does disruptive mean to you? What does that word mean to you? Authenticity. (laughs) And where can we follow you? When are you, well, I was going to say, when are you next in the UK? But that might be a little while. Where can we follow you? Study more of your work. I mean, I am the, I'm the greatest fan of your work, John. Um, 
and been studying you for a long time. I want to thank you for everything you do for the world and for me. Um, and where can everyone study you like I have? Uh, it's just a simple drdmartini.com. D-R-D-Martini, D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com, drdmartini.com. My website is an educational experience, as you know. There's, there's literally thousands of YouTube, pod, webinars, radio, television, medias. I mean, there's all kinds of education on there. And then there's also online stuff and products and seminars and live programs and webinars and podcasts, all the things that most people are doing. But it's just an educational website, so that's probably the wisest place to know. I, I don't even know myself until I get my itinerary, so I, I have to go and find out. I, I learned a long time ago, hire a woman to tell you what to do and you'll be fulfilled in life. <laughs> Perfect place to leave it. John, thank you very much for your time. I've been, I'm very grateful. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the, the questions. They're great questions. And thank you for putting yourself in the hot seat because it's, it's great to have it that way too. My pleasure. I, had, I enjoyed it. It's a little bit wobbly at times, but I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, John. Thank you.